Hi everyone, my name is Essen and you are listening to the Brown History Podcast. At the beginning of October, the government of Pakistan announced that it would expel all undocumented foreigners, including 1.7 million Afghans, one of the country's largest immigrant communities. This includes those who were born in, brought up, married, had children, and then raised their families in Pakistan. And many of them had fled from the Taliban and are terrified of heading back to the Taliban government. In the past month, we've seen... Heartbreaking scenes where Afghan students bid farewell to their Pakistani classmates with heartfelt hugs. And at the border, there are long lines of trucks laden with the possessions of Afghan families. The United Nations and human rights organizations have widely criticized Pakistan's practice of forcefully returning refugees. This is cruelty on a massive scale. In today's episode, we sit with Sana Alimia, author of Refugee Cities, How Afghans Changed Urban Pakistan, and discuss the Afghan refugees in Pakistan, their history, their current situation, and most importantly, we shed light on their humanity. If you enjoyed this episode and you're enjoying the podcast and you're enjoying the Instagram feed and you want to support and you want to help out, do consider being a patron. It takes a few seconds and your help goes a long, long way. So thank you so much and thank you so much for listening. Let's get this started. Here we go. So I'm probably going to record in the introduction the context of what's happening right now in Pakistan, where uh, I think 1.7 million Afghan refugees are being deported. But I think if you were to give the context, it would give a lot more hindsight of what's going on. And maybe there's things that the media isn't really reporting or I won't be able to mention. And then you can show us kind of a different perspective of what's really happening and why we should be concerned. Okay, so I think I can kind of provide a bit of context and background. And so in September of 2023, the government of Pakistan, which is actually a caretaker government that has only been put in power effectively to usher in new elections that are meant to be taking place um, quite soon, but have not yet been scheduled. Interesting. Yeah, so the primary reason that they're kind of there is just to, they don't really have a mandate to do this. They have one purpose, and that is the elections. But this government has kind of made the announcement in late September that anybody who is, quote, uh, undocumented, end quote, Afghan, needs to be deported. And that's this 1.7 million number, which many of us actually don't know where this 1.7 million number comes from, because actually the country is home to probably around about 4 million Afghans, 1.4 million of whom are registered refugees who have these cards with the United Nations High Commission for Refugees. There's another 800,000 or so that have another set of identity cards that are provided by another UN agency, the International Organization of Migration. Some folks came in after the 2021 Taliban um, being put into power and getting into power in uh, in Afghanistan, in Kabul. And the numbers for that have varied from as a minimum of 600,000. So who is being categorized legally as being documented and undocumented and illegal and illegal itself has been somewhat confusing. So the number has thrown us. Um, And by us, I mean organizers and scholars and people who've been working on the ground for a number of years. But this caretaker government, the announcement is not something that's unusual. There's been years of Afghans facing various forms of violations within the country, threats of deportation, actual deportations taking place. But what has been new is that this announcement that we want to deport this number of people has been so forcefully pushed through by the government. And many of us are considering why is this happening at this moment? Why is the government of Pakistan so frustrated? 
And some theories that have been put forward um, range from domestic politics to foreign politics and Pakistan trying to get an influence in foreign policies and in Afghanistan in particular. So one of the theories is that the government of Pakistan, which often has power not just in the current government, but really the khakis who are the real power holders within the country, right, in Pakistan. Right. So a lot of people are saying that <clears throat> this is kind of part of the usual story where the government of Pakistan is kind of doing the dirty work of the bigger bosses. Mm -hmm. um, and the bigger bosses want to kind of have an influence over um, the Taliban in Afghanistan um, and the Tehrike Taliban within Pakistan who haven't really been towing the state line. Right. So we are very well aware historically that the Pakistani state and the military establishment has had a huge part in allowing the Taliban to flourish within Afghanistan and also within Pakistan, this narrative of good Taliban, bad Taliban. But it's never always fully been able to control them, right? There is this, you know, they are autonomous in many ways and independent from the military establishment and from the Pakistani state. Mm -hmm. The folks are saying that because they've been way, the Taliban have been acting in the past few, you know, months um, against what the state and establishment wants, this is a way of kind of punishing um that government in Kabul and that state and kind of doing a foreign policy mixed agenda where they use Afghan refugees as political footballs to kind of get this message across. Or they're, you know, effectively um, punishing a whole population within the country to kind of get this message across. And this is itself is not unusual. Historically, the Pakistani state has often used refugees within the country to achieve and articulate political goals. It's not an, it's not an unusual thing that's happening in that regard. But I think, of course, given the scale of the deportations and, you know, today I was reading somewhere that it's estimated that anything from 360,000 to 400,000 people within these past few weeks have just fled and been forced across the border because they've been effectively hounded by local law enforcement agencies and been rounded up and put into detention centers to leave. So there's one big dimension in you know that's at play and that's partly to do with state politics and geopolitics and the way in which refugee groups are used as political footballs and historically have been um by the state to kind of achieve if you know not even achieve but to kind of perform these foreign politics and desires of the Pakistani state so that's one of the kind of big points of discussion and points of contention others have said that you know the state is doing this and the government is doing this because the US, Germany, the UK, France has had thousands of Afghans who are waiting on visas, who were meant to have been evacuated to these countries on asylum policies um, that were promised by these states in 2021 when there were mass evacuations of Afghans who had supported um you know, the um the US military intervention and its allies' intervention in Afghanistan. And by supported, it could have either been they directly acted as military translators. In many cases, they may have just been human rights activists, uh, people working in kind of, you know, song and art and, and and other things, or they might have just been translators in schools or working within kind of like a British school or something like this. But the point is, is that, you know, 
thousands and thousands of Afghans have been just kind of like waiting in Pakistan in limbo, in transit, where they are meant to have been evacuated to the UK, to Germany, to France. The US has taken lots of money from many of these Afghans to apply from visa schemes, but have not actually done anything. So many have kind of been left in limbo and have been left within Pakistan, just kind of like waiting uh, for their futures to be determined. And they're on this status of, of a visa that has kind of run out um, mm-hmm. They don't really have a legal status within the country. So partly it's, some have said that it's also a means and a tools to kind of like put foreign policy pressure on the US and on the Western kind of like states that have promised asylum too. Um, and of course, you know, for 40 years plus, Afghans have been a long term protracted refugee population within the country. Um, but I think what's really, really important to understand is that the presence of Afghans in Pakistan for 40 years plus has primarily been as a consequence of the meddling in many ways of the Pakistani state in Afghanistan that have created conditions for war and for conflict within the country, Mm -hmm. as well as of other states, including the US and its military-led intervention post-2001, but even earlier than that in the 1970s and the 1980s with the Soviet Union, as war in Afghanistan um, against uh, the Afghan people, that was used then quite willingly and happily by the US and other allies as a um, means for kind of using uh, the Afghan refugee diaspora in Pakistan um, as a way to fight a military war in um, in Afghanistan in the Cold War context. So using Afghanistan and its refugee diaspora as a proxy war to kind of win the Cold War. So the conditions for conflict within Afghanistan of 40 years plus uh, of war are partly um, a consequence, of course, of failings, of course, of the Afghan elites and the Afghan state, but also of regional powers who've constantly been meddling and interfering. Pakistan is one party, Iran another party, and also, of course, these global superpowers as well. And I think that's a really fundamental kind of like point to remember Um, when we're talking about the refugee crisis and conflict at the current moment. So geopolitics is never too far away from determining the lives of how, um, of determining how ordinary people's lives are experienced um, in in Pakistan when it comes to the Afghan population. Mm -hmm. Before we move forward, let's talk about the history of the Afghan community in Pakistan. Um, From my research, if you go back to the history, I think there's three big events that happened to the Afghan story in Pakistan. I think First is the uh, the British rule of India, which sets the tone for everything, which sets the borders, which sets how even the police conduct themselves, how the Afghans are seen in pu- uh, by the public, by the rest of the world, their image. Okay, and I think event number two is the Soviet-Afghan war, where uh, everybody loves the Afghans. Uh, they're the heroes of the world. They're like what Ukraine is right now. Everybody is rooting for them. And then I think in the in the early 2000s, you have the war on terror, where all of a sudden it switches. And uh, now they're kind of like trouble. They're bad news. They're dangerous. And they're not the heroes of the story anymore. They're the villains. And that kind of changes everybody's perspective. And it probably allows people to do bad things on the Afghan community, I'm assuming, because now they have like the, the the narrative is now against them. So I don't know if I'm right or correct me if I'm wrong or if you want to elaborate on any of these three events. No, I but, think you're I think you're right. I think I mean, you know, I think those are kind of like three good kind of like framings to kind of like connect the issues um and connect kind of like the lived experiences of Afghans both within Afghanistan and also kind of like the region reg, uh, regional countries. 
So I think that's a good framing. I think one thing that I would say is that there's a lot of connections between these kind of like British colonial constructions of a France society that continue on until the current moment and that are kind of very willingly embraced. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, so basically, so... You know, when you had, um, so scholars within South Asian historiography kind of refer to this as this Elphinstone's epistemology, right? Like this Mount Stuart Elphinstone, who was this, you know, Scottish, British colonialist, you know, the usual adventurer and anthropologist before his time who kind of tries to embed himself within um, Afran and Pashtun society and comes up with, uh, you know, like this ethnography and codification of what he understands as kind of like Pashtun ways of being and a Pashtun lifestyle. And what he does through these processes is almost kind of like reifies this um, imagery of violence, both positive and negative, right? Mm -hmm. That there is this idea of the noble savage that then gets written about in Rudyard Kipling's kind of works that he does along um, the frontier, the NWFP, the Northwest Frontier Province. He refers to Peshawar as the city of, you know, where you're going to encounter various forms of evils. And it's both valorized um, as a, as violence underpinning Bashtun lifestyle. That's something to be, you know, applauded because it's heroic, much like what you've said that you see taking place during the Soviet-Afghan war, where the Mujahideens are kind of like revered as these heroes. Mm -hmm. But again, it's always this one-dimensional humanity that underpins their valorization, a one-dimensional humanity of them being warriors, um, which is very easily able to shift into kind of like, uh, and slip into these narratives of them being one-dimensional kind of like violent, negative bogeymans of terror if you will and that was always there in like Mount Stuart Elphinstone's kind of reading and the colonialist kind of like depiction along the frontier because when the British kind of like started to enter into territories that were you know Pashtun dominant majority territories they often conflated Afghans and Pashtuns and you know using the language and terminology as often being one and the same a lot of the times you know you know Pashtuns spoke Pashto and, and and wrote in Pashto too, but they were also writing in Persian and in other languages too. You know, a lot of the Pashtun kind of like dynasties and Pashtun states, the bureaucratic language of it was in Persian. But that kind of like gets sidelined and ignored as well as you kind of like need to have a one-dimensional way of understanding what it means to be a Pashtun slash Afghan. Um, but you see kind of like these tropes almost word for word playing out again during the war on terror. Um, you see these kind of like tropes playing out also, you know, almost exactly the same, even with the Soviet Union's intervention. Somebody's written about Soviet Union's Orientalism in Afghanistan, um, a historian called Timothy Noonan. And he basically says that a lot of the Soviet archives um, and a lot of the Soviet ethnographies about the military interventions during the 1980s actually just directly borrowed from British colonial sources. Wow. Right? So they kind of just... They were just translations of like Elphinstone's work and they were translations of these British colonial kind of like interventions, which is why you have those tropes reappearing, even for the Soviet Union, who had somewhat of a different project, kind of the capitalist kind of like liberal projects of intervention and neoliberal peace building. They were very violent to the Soviet Union, too, but they were also very developmentalist. So they were trying to kind of like change the state through education through kind of like architecture within Kabul through kind of you know a whole host of kind of infrastructure and educational projects so they were different in many ways uh, but they were also very similar in the sense of kind of like using violence to 
uh, enact their stronghold on the country, but also using these kind of like violent epistemologies and framings that were very much shaped by this European and Western European kind of like colonial knowledge production. Similarly, then in 2001, when you have the US military-led intervention in Afghanistan, they're kind of talking about these same, you know, colonial um, handbooks they refer back to. And they kind of like, okay, Pashtun Wali means this, Pashtun Wali means that, you know, and of course, societies change through time, right? They interact, they change, they're fluid, mm-hmm. they interact with other groups, but there's none of, there's no scope for this, right? It's always this one dimensional humanity. And I think that has been really, um, a really, really negative kind of um, framing that has been used by these, certainly by the US, certainly by um, the Soviet Union, but also even by the Pakistani military establishment, who themselves are very Anglophone in how they're trained. Many of them train at like these British establishments like Sandhurst, or they kind of get trained in these kind of like British military academies, and they're very connected to even to the US administration. And that whole knowledge production is very um, familiar and inherits almost these colonial kind of like ways in, of framing uh, the state. A lot of the Pakistani state's uh, governance practices for, of Afghan refugees and of the border basically use exactly the same institutional framings and and buildings um, and departments that were used by the British colonial administration to govern Afghanistan. Um, and to govern the northwest frontier province, now Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, and the former federally tribally administered areas. So Afghan refugees, for example, in 1979 and 1980-81, when they start coming in in many, you know, in large, large numbers, don't get, um, you know, taken care of under the Ministry of Home Affairs or the, you know, Home Department. Uh, they have to be taken care of by the Ministry of the States and Frontier Regions that was primarily concerned with the border with Afghanistan and with foreign policy in Afghanistan. They are not viewed as a population that needs to become legally integrated into the state or given pathways to refuge and to asylum. They're always understood as a population that can be useful, yes, about this blurred Afghanistan-Pakistan border that exists at the time in the 1980s, they can be useful because you can use the refugee camps and you can use this fluid border as a way of launching uh, resistance attacks. Uh, And it's a very useful fluid border in the 1980s and they're a very useful population, but they have to be kept at a limit. The usefulness Mm -hmm. is only to a certain degree, right? You can be useful for foreign policy goals, but you shouldn't be kind of like a part of the state. You shouldn't become a citizen. You shouldn't have pathways to legal citizenship. And there isn't any pathways to legal citizenship that are offered to Afghan refugees. Even they kind of have these um, uh, Shanakhti cards, Shanakhti passbooks that are um, identity passbooks issued by the government of Pakistan where you can get your rations from the World Food Programme or from the UN in the 1980s. But on the back of that card, it's kind of written that this passbook uh, will not allow you any pathways to to citizenship, right? So they're welcome, but at a distance, right? Mm -hmm. Um, They're welcome in the 1980s when they're a geopolitically useful kind of tool and population. And that fluid border between Afghanistan and Pakistan, this fluid border that was purposefully constructed by the British to be fluid and to be a buffer zone against kind of like an impending Russian threat and also against uh, the Afghan state at the time too, is a very useful uh, geography for the Pakistani state and for the US and its allies in the 1980s, but becomes a lot less useful in the 2000s when, you know, suddenly 
there is a need to military intervene in Afghanistan by the US military establishment who are effectively just looking for revenge. They're not really kind of, you know, the, I think it's a really, I think that's also something to pause and to reflect on, right? These 20, 20, 20 years of military intervention that were taken upon, the US took upon itself in 2001 as a consequence of the September 11 attacks were, um, primarily about revenge, right? They were not yeah. really about kind of like un- going after the architects of that violence per se. Um, it was against a state that had already been facing years and years of war and conflict and drought um, and had been facing economic sanctions, was isolated against kind of in the international community, you know, just faced a massive ecological drought um, and then is faced with massive aerial bombardment at the time. Um, and George Bush, of course, says it at the time as well. You know, I want to go out and get these guys, right? Um, I'm going to make them pay. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, uh, you know, that becomes an important part of the story as well, right? And these tropes, like you said, from that period, from British rule to the Soviet rule <clears throat> um, and to the Taliban kind of like interventions, these are three really important moments and they are quite distinct moments. And yet somehow the past is always present in really violent ways and really powerful ways throughout that story as well. Wow. Um, you know, one of the things that stuck out for me uh, of what's happening in Pakistan is that a lot of the people who are being deported were born in Pakistan, were raised in Pakistan, who've never even seen Afghanistan. And it makes me question the word refugee and are these children, are they considered refugees? A lot of people who hear the word refugee they assume short-term temporary they think of tents they think of a of a place a refugee camp as a place with tents and and they're ready to go i wanted to know what kind of i guess what kind of place and and space is the afghan community holding in pakistan as in you know what's the housing like what's the what, what? How do they live? How do they uh, get on day to day? What is it like really there? Because it's been so long, I'm assuming it's just a, a neighborhood. Yeah, so as um, a good friend of mine and a good colleague of mine, she always says is that, you know, you need to be able to kind of like, we need to be able to think and imagine of these situations of Afghan refugees as kind of being, you know, that, do we even use the word refugees anymore? Should we even be using these term refugees? Mm-hmm. Um. One thing what's interesting is that, you know, and I'll come on to your point um, in a moment in terms of like the the living conditions and what we should use in terms of language. One thing that's been really important to kind of like account for is that most of the people who've been entering into Pakistan from Afghanistan over the past 40 years in these different kind of periods and as a consequence of different wars and conflicts in Afghanistan are usually... um, moving to the country as a consequence of war, right? And usually and these long-term wars that have been taking place within the country. Now, the way refugees are framed and understood in international law and international humanitarian discourse often only allows them to have like a very one-dimensional humanity. Like you need to be 
fleeing war and you need to be politically persecuted and your life needs to be at risk. And for most of the people who are migrating from Pakistan, from Afghanistan into Pakistan, of course, fit these circumstances, but they also have very, com- they're human beings, right? They're people uh, with multidimensional kind of like personalities, desires and needs. Some may be moving because they want to improve their lives. Some might move for, for romance. Some might move for a whole host of different reasons. And I think it's important to kind of like say that because, um, you know, people should be able to move anyway, right? But when they want to improve their life through these arbitrary borders often that have been violently constructed as a consequence of like colonialism um, and also as a consequence of the post-independent states and the directions that they've taken. And what's been really almost, you know, harrowing to see is how the Pakistani establishment, often emboldened by international institutions, including humanitarian organizations and refugee organizations like the United Nations High Commission Refugees for Refugees in Pakistan, UNHCR, is what you've seen over the past 40 years is that they've almost engaged in this process of refusing to give refuge, right? So they don't even want to use the term refugees the state itself tries to not even use the term refugees to describe Afghans in Pakistan. It's often spoken about as a refugee crisis, but if you go into the legality of what the Pakistani establishment is doing, oftentimes emboldened by these international institutions, um, you can see that they're trying to get groups not classified as refugees on technicalities. Afghans in Pakistan who are you know, recognized as refugees in many ways are now often referred to as um, registered Afghans or Afghans with a proof of registration card, um, Afghan citizens in Pakistan, Afghans with a temporary right to stay in the country, Afghans who are Afghan citizen card holders. AC why? Card- why is it described like that? Like why yeah, do they so, switch it? So they kind of switch it as a way to refuse to give refuge and as a way to refuse to give asylum. I think it's a very purposeful kind of like tactic that is used by the state again, to kind of legally distance themselves from kind of the Afghan population and to not allow them to become long-term, become integrated in a long-term meaningful way within the state. Even, you know, even Afghans who are considered to be registered refugees, that's they fall within the mandate of the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, UNHCR. They are kind of like their right to remain within the country is reviewed every year, every three years every year or every three years, depending on kind of like how foreign policy relations are. And so what the government of Pakistan did in the 70s and the 80s, anybody who was an Afghan who came into the who came into Pakistan was considered to be a refugee automatically. They were given on first encounter refugee status in accordance with international humanitarian law. And the 1981 handbook that was issued by the government of Pakistan to manage these refugees also kind of said that these would be people who are refugees because they are fleeing a military occupation, giving a nod to the Soviet Union's invasion of the country. So these were people who were given on first encounter refugee status. And this starts to change when the Soviet Afghan war ends. It starts to change because there's huge amounts of funding, like, you know, so much money is kind of like poured into Peshawar, poured into Islamabad by international aid agencies who get that money from donor funding from the Western Bloc in the Cold War context. And that money kind of like almost immediately dries up as soon as the Soviet Afghan war ends and the Soviet Union is defeated in the Cold War context. The government of Pakistan still considers the Afghan refugee population to be quite useful because they're still using them as a a proxy to kind of gain influence in Afghanistan or um, via kind of having influence on a newly emergent Taliban regime. 
that emerges within the country. But as the geopolitics political condition shift, as you mentioned, right, with this kind of post-2001 intervention in Afghanistan, the Afghan population within uh, Pakistan is no longer seen as useful. Pakistan joins the US in the war on terror. Mm -hmm. Uh, They are the military base through which NATO trucks go up from, you know, Karachi and from the port. They go up from Karachi through Peshawar, through into Kabul, uh, over the Khyber Pass. They have become a really important kind of like ally, often a duplicitous ally for the US, but they're still nonetheless an important ally, right? Um, And it's after 2001, and it really gets implemented after 2001, much more forcefully by 2005, um, for bureaucratic reasons, that any Afghan who enters into Pakistan is no longer given on first encounter refugee status. They are consi- they automatically become illegal, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is, you know, again, the definition of who counts as a refugee is shaped by these kind of like shifting geopolitical trends. And I think it's important to refuse those um, categorizations and it's important to kind of push back against those categorizations to not use the language of refugees and undocumented migrants and illegal migrants for us as people who are thinking critically when the government is trying to do this and actually to say, well, actually, the entire system is kind of like needs to be shaken up and we need to reconsider why we're using this language and who is telling us to use this language in the first place, right? And the UNHCR and now the International Organization of Migration, they haven't really been, you know, offering solutions, long-term solutions for the Afghan population in the country, which really would be if they were really thinking about in a language of rights and a language of kind of like and what people should be offered, they would be talking about uh, pathways to legal integration as a basic minimum, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and instead, their primary concern has been, okay, let's talk about refugee repatriation schemes, um, because this suits the government of Pakistan. In the 2000s, it also suits the US, it also suits the West, because they want to say Afghanistan is a safe country, um, you know, the war isn't really taking place, everyone should come back, let's engage in a neoliberal peace building program in Kabul. And of course, many people did return. Many people wanted to return. For many people, it was a homeland and it is a homeland. Uh, And so that should be recognized too. But many other people, you know, they they did not want to return. They had lived in Pakistan for too long. But, you know, this, what instead was kind of being pushed was a language of refugee repatriation, right? And that was being pushed by the Pakistani state, but also by international institutions. whose kind of, you know, role in kind of like this has been called out a number of times, including by my own work, but also by other organizers, other organizations, including Human Rights Watch, who have said that the UNHCR in Pakistan has failed massively over the years, because instead of kind of being able to stand as an autonomous um, humanitarian organization, it's often kind of just been more concerned with not upsetting the the state too much and also just following and managing processes rather than kind of offering forms of protection and real meaningful solutions Mm -hmm. to the refugee population and i think that becomes important because i think your question is really important too is like you know should we be calling this population refugees and Mm -hmm. I'm saying, well, I think absolutely not, right? We should be talking about for most Afghans within the country, even for people who are coming in later, people who've been coming in 2021, we should be talking about offering pathways to becoming Pakistani and we should be talking about them as Pakistan's Afghans, right? But instead what we see is we're not even getting to a point where they can even be considered refugees, you know? Yeah. Uh, right? So That's the crazy. kind of like announcement, there was an announcement by 
um, you know, the Pakistan Foreign Ministry spokesperson, Mumtaz Zahra Baloch, who says that, you know, anybody who is exiting needs to pay an $830 fee now because they are um, illegal immigrants who have overstayed their welcome by two years and overstayed their visas. So they're not even being given this kind of like any recognition of refugee mm-hmm. status or having a right to try to claim asylum within the country. And part of that is to do with the fact that, you know, there isn't a refugee framework, a national law and asylum processes that are easy to understand or in place within the country. Um, but it's also, you know, a very purposeful political kind of like uh, direction that's been taken by the state. And I think that um, that is really striking that even, you know, we should be talking about Pakistan's Afghans, right? And pathways to legal integration, but we can't even get the conversation to kind of like giving people recognition as refugees. And and that's pretty, pretty harrowing. If there's no pathway to citizenship, and as far as I know, uh, Pakistan doesn't really provide things like access to water, uh, houses, things like that. It's it's every man for himself when it comes to the pa- Afghan refugees in Pakistan. Yeah. Can you describe what the Afghan commu- Afghanistan Afghan community looks like in Pakistan? I mean, how how did they live? Where did they get their uh, livelihoods from? I mean, you know, these are real people in this country who've who've interacts with their who interact with Pakistanis who've, who've become part of the country. How is that like? Yeah. I mean I think that like, you know, I think for over 40 years within the country, then there's no way, right, that they have uh, one, the Pakistani state doesn't have the capacity to kind of keep people isolated. And they've really, you know, people have moved across the country and they really are, you know, there's a Majority of Afghans in Pakistan are Pashtun uh, in terms of their ethnicity. Some are mixed. And there are also many Uzbeks, Tajiks, Hazaras, Turkmens, also Baloch. So the Afghan population within the country too is mixed. And they live primarily, have primarily lived in urban areas such as Peshawar, Quetta, but also Karachi and other parts of the country. Interestingly, there is a pathway to legal citizenship technically within Pakistani law. So the mm-hmm. 1951 citizenship law says that if anybody's born in the country, they should be eligible and considered to be able to become a citizen. That's um, perfect. Yeah. So basically, there should be thousands of people who should be citizens. But the yeah. government always kind of like said naturalization is not an option. There's always been a block. There's some really important kind of like casework that's being done by lawyers and human rights activists on the ground that are testing these cases, that are trying to push forward this argument that actually these people are Pakistanis, they should be, they have the right to become Pakistani citizens, so they should be given this access. And and there's really crucial kind of work that's going on at the moment that's trying to push this argument through. So technically there is a pathway. And also many Pakistani, um, you know, you know, Pakistani men who marry Afghan women, the Afghan women can become Pakistani citizens. Pakistani women who marry Afghan men, they cannot become what? Afghan. Yeah. So there's a gender dimension to this That's as well. And what you've up. had in places is, is insane because in places in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, like in Jar Sada, you've had Pakistani women fighting, fighting the courts and trying to fight for their right for their children to get citizenship or for their husbands to not be deported, for the families to remain connected to. And you know, many times they've kind of been fighting these battles like alone um and you know it's 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 a horrible thing for families to get split across borders like this and they've had choice right in these kind of cases so there are there is there's a need to kind of like revisit the citizenship laws there's also a need to understand that there's a capacity for people to kind of live there but this also points to the thing that you know in places in Jarsada, places in Murdan, many Afghans have married Pakistanis you know it's quite a normal practice you live in a neighborhood uh 
you know, there are again talking about tropes. There's always these tropes that you hear in kind of like uh, academic and scholarly Anglophone kind of production is that, you know, uh, Pashtuns don't marry outside of Pashtuns. You know, people mix, right? It's a very mm-hmm. normal part of process of kind of like urbanization, of capitalism, of kind of like interactions, so all of these different things people have and historically also have mixed. And what you see within neighborhoods is that most Afghans who moved into in Pakistan, the majority of the population are from lower income groups who have moved mainly from rural areas in Afghanistan and mainly settled in urban areas, but often on the rural to urban interface. Pakistan itself is also not a high income kind of like country. So uh, a lot of the times migrant groups um, kind of like settle down um, in areas with lower income Pakistanis of comparable class standings. And that's a lot of what my work has been concerned with, is looking at informal housing areas on the rural to urban interfaces of cities and how Pakistans and Afghans live with each other side by side. And that's, of course, you know, there are uh, there are lower middle income Afghans, middle class income Afghans, and quite there's also an Afghan elite within Pakistan too, who does, has, does have quite a lot of money. But that's not the main majority story. And I was kind of wanted to always tease out these stories. And, you know, most cases, people, of course, are not living within tents, like you mentioned. They're living in informal housing areas where the tent has morphed into, you know, moved into a, a mud house, a kacha house, then moved into a cement house. And, they're, you know, if you look at a neighborhood, you wouldn't necessarily know where an Afghan neighborhood and a Pashtun neighborhood began, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of times the neighborhoods can be mixed because... Initially, the government um, and the humanitarian aid agencies had tried to set up refugee camps, and there were a lot of refugee camps in the 1980s. There were some 331 refugee camps. Today, there's about 52. But even then, most people still lived, you know, there was always a majority of people settling in urban neighborhoods and living side by side with Pakistani neighbors, playing cricket together, much of the, you know, brilliant Afghan cricket team. And now mm-hmm. we've done amazing in this past World Cup. Many of many of them, uh, you know, lived in Pakistan for, for a number of years, some for many years, um, you know, and had, you know, you know, Pakistani friends who they played with. They, you know, the recently one of the cricketers, of course, dedicated his victory and the team's right. victory World yeah. Cup to yeah. kind of like Afghan refugees who were being forcibly deported from their homes in Pakistan. So you've often had a lot of interactions, right? Um and um, I think there's interestingly, I find that a lot of the hostility at this current moment towards Afghans in Pakistan, within Pakistan, and a recent Gallup poll showed, for example, that you know m- many Pakistanis were quite happy for Afghans to be forcibly returned as this economic kind of like rival within the country, right? They're taking our jobs, this kind of like regular the classic narrative like- that you'd get. Yeah, exactly. But but a lot of that is in areas where you don't have that many Afghans. So it might be in like Lahore, which is a Punjab majority city. Um, and there are Afghans who work there, of course, but they're not in, uh, you know, a large sizable number. Whereas in Peshawar, one in five people are Afghan nationals, right? Or, or you know, Afghan origin nationals, right? Um who may have moved over in the 1970s and the 1980s. And it's not that discrimination and tensions aren't there. They are too. A lot of work that's been written by recent journalists has kind of like shown how these tensions are playing out. But there is a difference in the scale of kind of like the violence that gets enacted upon people by the law enforcement agencies and then by also uh, communities too. Um, So you can, you see that playing out. 
migrant workers are usually contribute to the growth and development of the countries that they live in, of the cities that they live in. How has the Afghan population in Pakistan contributed to Pakistan? So I basically say they built Pakistan, right? I say they are the people who built the country alongside Pakistanis of similar class backgrounds. I, you know, the working classes of Pakistan includes and must always include the Afghan uh, migrant labor workforce. You cannot imagine a city in Peshawar and the suburban massive housing development projects that had taken place there or the roads or roads in Karachi uh, or even kind of like how crops have been transformed within the country without having a place and a space for Afghans within that story. And, um, you know, I always think back to this quote by Engels in The English and the Making of the Working Class, where he kind of says, you know, the Irish have been really important to the Industrial Revolution. Like you say, right, migrant labor workforces are always really important parts of the story of capitalist development, oftentimes because they can be exploited sometimes because of their precarity and they can provide a really cheap kind of like labor workforce. But what is striking is the way in which this kind of labor workforce is not even acknowledged for the way in which they've transformed um, economies, transformed infrastructure, uh, transformed entire kind of like ways of being. Instead, it's kind of like, you know, sometimes, you know, you'll have in like middle class liberal living room circuses, oh, well, they've, you know, they've contributed a lot and they've done a lot for the country. And yeah, absolutely, um, they have. But it should also be recognized that, you know, it doesn't mean that just because they contribute, we should be kind of like grateful too, right? We should be able to kind of give people refuge Uh, and welcome them into the country without kind of like looking at them as being useful or productive units. Um, As tools. As tools, right? Um, You know, love us when we're kind of like wretched, naked and suicidal, the poet Sumeya Manzur Khan says, right? Love us in all of these forms instead of when we're useful or not. And I think that's important to remember. And at the same time, also acknowledging the labor, right, of people who kind of do massively contribute towards the success stories that the state that elites, that companies, that corporations would like to celebrate. Yeah. How do how do the Afghans in Pakistan see themselves? Because it's a very weird uh, situation for them because they're not included in Pakistan. They're away from Afghanistan. They're kind of in between or they're nowhere. So it's very weird because what unites them is, uh, I guess, they speak different languages too. So language isn't something and religion isn't something that unites them so how does how does that as a community build upon itself and how does this community kind of be, stay a community yeah i mean i think it's an important question i also don't you know i think as somebody who's not a fan and who hasn't lived that experience i can't really right. summarize or say that this is what everyone's experience is i can say from what i've heard and what my work has kind of like shown Um, And I know that the experiences can be varied and they are varied along kind of class lines. They're varied along gendered lines. Um, Is there one Afghan community also within Pakistan and how are the different times that people moved shaping their experiences? How does, you know, where they live within the country shape these experiences all become really important parts of the story. Um, And I think what's interesting is that For many of the people who I worked with, I think oftentimes living side by side with 
their neighbors who may have been Pakistani um, or their friends or these kind of like quite intimate everyday rhythms of life that you would have with people would show like a great deal of appreciation for the people who they lived alongside by with. Oftentimes because the people that they lived with were often facing the same challenges as them, not being able to get access to water, not being able to get good sanitation lines, having issues of like police harassment, although it would be always more pronounced for the non-citizen of the country, it's always more pronounced for Afghans. So a lot of the times the people that I worked with, because they had these shared lived experiences, often would make a distinction between how they lived alongside with their neighbours who were Pakistani and in the communities of which they're a part and which the shared struggles of which they had. Um and would kind of recognize and locate themselves in those communities. They'd be like, you know, very much, you know, met many people who are very proud to say they're Karachiya. It's very, very proud to say they're from Peshawar, very proud mm-hmm. of their neighborhood. Yeah. But would have a real kind of nervousness and tension and hostility when it kind of came to kind of the state or the nation or Pakistan as kind of like a national concept, uh, because that nation would often be quite violent toward them whether it's the law enforcement agency, uh, whether it's kind of like the military, whether it's the rhetoric that's coming out from elites. And in many ways, as you know, racialized subjects who often kind of live in the West, um, you know, we can relate to that or I can relate to that because, you know, when I've been living in the UK and in London, I'm quite happy to say I'm from London, but do I really want to say that I'm British or attached to kind of like the British state? It's always kind of like this limit that I have to that attachment as a consequence of the violent nature of the state in my home territories or homelands and territories or that I'm attached to, or the violent nature, say, of the police and how they racialize Muslim men and Muslim women and have no problem in kind of like, you know, putting surveillance on young kids and in school. So I can understand and relate to it from those lived experiences in a different context. And from what I read and understood and spoke with and people who I've interviewed over the years, you know, there's a real kind of like clear understanding of kind of understanding their sociological formations of the towns and cities and the communities of their apart, but also a need of kind of being able to separate and distance itself from the way that they're racialized by the nation and by the state. Once they're deported, what happens to them in Afghanistan? Like, what is, what are they, do you know what it's like for them? Yeah, so at the moment, um, from what I've understood. So like I said, like these patterns of deportation, there's a really, um, you know, really interesting work, scholarly work that's been done by folks like uh, Shahram Khosravi and Nassim Majidi, who look at deportations of Afghans from Europe, but also from Iran. Um, and they show us that a lot of the times, you know, when people get deported back, a lot of times um, there can be a stigma within the communities, you know, when they're kind of like deported back or deported to Afghanistan, rather, for the first time for many people. Stigma within the new communities of which they're a part. Um, Shahram Khosravi's work says that deportation also becomes a way of life because what ends up happening is when people get deported, they often just re-migrate again and sometimes will get deported again because they cannot live or they find it difficult to live um in a new setting, effectively, right, where they don't have social networks, where they don't have like family, where they don't have access to the economy, or where the economy is utterly kind of like in ruins as a consequence of conflict and of war. So a lot of times what you see happening is people re-migrating again. So in 2017, for example, there was a big deportation drive by the government of Pakistan that Human Rights Watch called out 
Uh, and also, again, in that particular report, spoke about the UNHCR's complicity in allowing this. What folks found after these waves of deportations is many people just came back when the situation had res had settled down and calmed down. Other cases, we've had activists and organizers who are on the border at the moment and who are saying that many people um, are kind of just being settled and housed in, in informal housing areas or if they can find family to go and be connected with or people that they know to be connected with are kind of going back to these conditions. But, you know, we are talking about a situation where kind of the World Food Programme is talking about a massive humanitarian disaster because we're at the onset of winter in Afghanistan uh, that's just about to start. So conditions oh. are going to get very cold for people. There's already a World Food Programme saying there's already, you know, crisis of food. The Afghan state is kind of like right at the cusp of facing economic, it's, it's facing economic sanctions, right? And economic sanctions, the way it works is it's not going to affect the people in power. It is affecting people who are um, not being able to access food anyway. And then when you've got this situation and then you've got 400,000 other people being pushed uh, and expelled into the country from Pakistan, this is adding to an already precarious situation and conditions of winter being taken place. You've also had recent earthquakes in Herat and other parts of Afghanistan, which were already kind of receiving humanitarian aid. So the actions that are taking place right now are incredibly just callous, right, by the government. It's, it's contributing to a massive humanitarian crisis in an already overstretched, uh, underfunded state that's you know, facing massive economic sanctions. And the, the Taliban government at the moment are trying to kind of like manage this as best they can. Um, but, you know, how much are they going to be able to do? And they're quite clearly saying this is a humanitarian disaster. We need aid. We need support. The government of Pakistan should not be doing this. And right now, to be frank, they're coming across much better than the government of Pakistan, right, uh, mm -hmm. in terms of this particular action. Um, this might sound like a dumb question, but when you're deporting uh, a mass, a uh, a bunch of people, a group of people, is there any case of deportation that was done ethically and people were like, "This was done right"? I don't think there's ever. Is there ever ever is there ever possible to deport people, um, where I guess mm -hmm. it's a respectful, humane manner? So there's so I think that one thing that's important to remember is many Pakistani citizens have been deported to in this kind of like whole mess too, right? This has also been recorded by like um humanitarian actors and people who are documenting stuff in the crowd is that you know Pakistani citizens who might have forgotten their ID card or even wow. have their ID card have also been crossed across the border. Most of them have been Pashtun. Many of them, there have also been young kids who've kind of like been deported. So the way it seems to be playing out on the ground doesn't seem to be particularly humane no. um, itself. And I think, yeah, in terms of like, is there any, you know, so the idea of kind of like the right of refugee repatriation, right? It's a bit different from, of course, you know, the Palestinian right of return that is a really important and crucial right to the political movement of Palestinians where people want to return to their homeland in a context of conflict where they're unable to do so. But in other, other contexts, we have this, you know, there is the idea of facilitating return and enabling return to a homeland when people want to return. Um, and sometimes the framework, you know, the idea is, is that an international humanitarian organization will allow support for people who have moved from, you know, who want to go from the host country back to the home country. And they'll facilitate that by giving some funding and giving some money. So in theory, there is a way of 
encouraging repatriation, but that's quite different from deportation, right? Repatriation is trying to is voluntary. It's meant to be for people who want to be able to return home. Um, and deportation is kind of like the forcible expulsion of populations um, or individuals or groups, um, you know, either because they've outstayed their welcome or, you know, you know, or they've kind of bureaucratically missed out kind of like one of these things. But so in theory, there are ways of kind of like enabling and encouraging return. But once, you know, somebody there is a process of non-refoundment, right? So deportation shouldn't really be a part of government policies uh, because international kind of like law says that you shouldn't really deport somebody if the conditions in the country, you know, of origin, for example, are, con you know, of conflict, which is clearly the case with the Afghans, right? Yeah, exactly. Clearly the case with the Afghan yeah. folks, right? Um, but, you know, Pakistan's been doing this. Germany this year has deported like 623 Afghans to Afghanistan as well. Um, the UK, you know, these are these are kind of like processes that are again being enabled by not just by the government of Pakistan, but also kind of like being okayed by European Union governments as well and are still taking place there. And in those contexts, it's not just land border crossing, it's kind of like on aeroplanes, right, um, wow. that are taking place. And technically, you shouldn't be deporting. And in legal terms and humanitarian customary law and international humanitarian law, you should not be deporting people to conditions of conflict. Um, so I don't think that there's an ethical way that you could be deported at this moment in time to, to Afghanistan. Repatriation in return becomes a different conversation. But even in those cases, like I mentioned, this idea of refugee repatriation has often uh, been used to kind of coerce people back to uh, or coerce people across the border. Even now with the Afghan cases, it's not like, you know, like it's not, you know, the archetypal bureaucratic Germanic way of deporting that we have in our imaginations from kind of like, you know, the fascist and totalitarian states of the 1940s where somebody comes around with a checklist and kind of goes door to door and then puts you on a truck and kind of pushes you across the border. A lot of the times what's been happening is kind of law enforcement agencies have just been harassing, harassing, harassing people. And by that, I mean, you know, abuse, uh, physical and verbal abuse, detentions of, you know, you know, juniors, young people, of children and of women in detention sending centers and saying well you need to kind of cross you need to get across the border and these levels of kind of violence that people are facing are like okay well we should get across the border and many people have kind of moved out of fear and this is kind of like it's a coercive return right it's almost informally kind of like encouraging through violence um these processes of return because you know you can have sometimes government vans that will come across and push people across the border but a lot of the times the government departments of Pakistan are chronically underfunded and don't even have the fuel to kind of get you across the border so wow. the idea is that you should be able to do this by yourself wow my last question is if somebody wanted to learn more about uh, the situation more learn about the Afghans uh, Afghan population in Pakistan what uh, books or film do you recommend that they can check out so I think there's really great besides your book <laughs> besides my book yeah <laughs> no, there's, there's definitely I think the book I've tried to make it accessible. It's kind of like these oral histories and testimonies, micro histories. So definitely refugee cities, mm -hmm. but also there's been really great work by um, people like, uh, including Anila Dolatzai, who has worked on Afghanistan and on Pakistan and those interconnections. She's a really interesting scholar to look at. Um, the work of um, Shahram Khosravi, who actually is uh, an Iranian author who wrote an ethnography himself, crossed the border as a migrant, illegal 
as he called it, quote, illegal, end quote, migrant from Iran to Afghanistan to Pakistan um, to India and then ended up in Europe. And he wrote a really moving ethnography, autoethnography of that journey in which some Afghans are also part of the story. Uh, there's also really great work on Afghan artists in Pakistan and in Iran and in other parts of South Asia by Paniz Musawi Natanzi, who's done some really good work on that front. Um, and those are kind of people who I'd really kind of like recommend if you're kind of like interested in just kind of like getting a foothold and trying to understand the story. There's really good people to follow on social media who are doing really interesting kind of like documentation of the current crisis. Um, the uh, the um, the GAC, so they're the Joint Ag uh, Justice for Afghans and Joint Action Committee. They're kind of doing really interesting work on kind of documenting the violence. The Aurat March in Lahore and Karachi have documented the violence in really right. good ways. Um, and there's also a really good solidarity statement by the Afghan Reparations Collective on kind of like outlining why we're in this situation and now it's quite a simple explainer for people who are kind of wanting to learn more. Why are we here in this current moment? How can we show solidarity with Afghans, both in Pakistan, but also in the European context, also in the US? Um, you know, why are we in this kind of moment now? So those are some of the folks who'd be interesting and good to kind of get that, uh, you know, starting point um, on the Afghan story in Pakistan. So, so just for my own understanding, just to summarize, um, so you have you have a large Afghan population in Pakistan that are refugees and very vulnerable people. The government exploits them, uses their cheap labor to build the cities that these Afghan population want to be a citizen of, but they can't. Once that's done, they kick them out, and Pakistan, and these Afghan refugees want to be a citizen of Pakistan. So yeah. it's like a very twisted kind of yeah. It's a very it's a warped. It's dark. It's, it's a really yeah. dark kind of yeah. like yeah. You know, it's and, a dark kind of yeah. And you said that a majority of the Pakistani citizens were happy with Afghans being deported, but they're living in the buildings that were built from their cheap labor. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's, that's all right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, the Afghan labor force, I'd say is that they weren't kind of like brought in primarily for the reason to kind of like transform the cities. You no, know, they but were, they were they're really there. Into, yeah. They're there. And, they're they're there and let's use, let's, let's see what we can make some profit out of this. Yeah. And, you know, and there's definitely like that kind of like element to it. Um, and there's all of the problems of kind of like Pakistani citizenship. But, you know, the thing to remember is, is that economically, there's a lot of wealth in Pakistan. You know, it's a much more stable state than Afghanistan. Right. So the reason why people want the citizenship is also because there are you have do, you know, for all of the woes and the problems of Pakistan, of which there are many, you still do, comparatively speaking, to Afghanistan, which has faced 40 years plus of right. war. You just there's, do have better access to healthcare, better access to jobs. There's light at the end of the them. tunnel yeah. in Pakistan. Yeah, compared yeah, to you Afghanistan. Can still, yeah, compared to Afghanistan, right? And and then for people who've kind of lived within, you know, these neighborhoods and towns and communities, and the people who want them out are usually usually not their neighbors, right? In some cases, it may be. There's been really interesting uh, journalism by Jemima Afridi 
a young journalist in Pakistan who's actually shown the cases where actually sometimes the people who are fleecing the Afghans the most are their neighbors or the businessmen or people who are quite happy to see them go because then they can take their assets. Mm. So that's quite a dark kind of like story that she's kind of uh, been documenting in really crucial kind of showing us crucial journalism. Uh, but definitely that's kind of like there's a darkness to that. But a lot of times the majority of anti-Afghan opinion is not always from the neighborhoods in which they've lived in. It's coming from oftentimes the places where they don't interact with Afghans. And you see similar stories kind of like, you know, in the US, sometimes the most racist places are often kind of like the places where they have least immigrants. Right. right? Yeah. So, you know, yeah, so yeah. you see that in the UK, you see that in Europe, you see that in Germany as well. Right. This yeah. idea of like this other that kind of gets dehumanized dehumanized and put out in the mainstream in the media but you know people want to improve their lives they want to live they want to give their kids opportunities they want to like have opportunities for themselves and that's why in many ways pakistan is the place to kind of go to um even though you know pakistan's a high migrant producing country itself yeah you know as that film says pakistan's in the body pakistan's is in the bag long live pakistan or shall we run away from pakistan alive right yeah so wow you know, so, yeah it's a very layered, complicated situation. It's very weird, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a lot of darkness. I think you're right about. Yeah, that, yeah. You know? I mean, if you look at it that way, it's like, what is going on here? There's something. There's something not right here. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, for sure. And I think that if you look at the callousness by which kind of like people kind of are very fine to kind of like go on social media and go on public spaces and be like, yeah, they need to be deported. You know, like it's this dissonance, right? So everyone, yeah. what we've been talking about at the moment is, you know, absolutely in this moment, we must be standing at a moment where we're witnessing a genocide unfold beneath, in front of our eyes on Palestinians. We need to be standing in solidarity with the Palestinian kind of peoples. That's something that many organizers and people within Pakistan have been saying and you'll go on to kind of like, you know, this Mumtaz Zahra Baloj, the foreign minister spokesperson, kind of says that Afghans need to be deported. And the next kind of like social media tweet is crying about the fate of Palestinians, right? Yeah. So there's a, there's something's not adding up. Yes. Nothing, nothing, right? Yes. As, say, yeah. right? As the youngins say these days, right? Something's yeah. not adding up. Um, and, you know, why is it that some lives are kind of like revered and the others it's totally okay? Even somebody's did a really funny social media kind of like video of you know somebody complaining about and worrying and being really concerned about the loss of life that's happening right now and it turns out you know she's concerned about afghans and the woman is like no no they they deserve to go right yeah and, and so that gap right and 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 for those of us who want to engage in the politics of like liberation truly we need to be able to connect these struggles right yeah. Um, and and that's kind of part of the work and the labor that's really crucial to allowing us to genuinely like move forward with a politics of emancipation for all of us. And it's the way that we who've been oppressing in this context, like saying we for myself as a Pakistani or half Pakistani at least, but you know, as we who are kind of complicit and um and and have benefited from these kind of like forms of exploitation, uh, you know, we are oppressed by this too, right? Uh, we, you know, by you know, by 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 this whole situation, and the only way we can kind of free ourselves is to connect these struggles of liberation. I think that's a good way to end the episode. <laughs> thank you. Uh, thank you so much for uh, talking to us. Thank you so much for everything you've done. Uh, yeah, thank. This was great. Yeah, it was really enlightening. So
Yeah, I appreciate it. And I appreciate you wanting to have the conversation and in this way too. Cool. Thanks so much. If you need anything else, you let me know too. Yeah. For sure. Thank you so much. Okay, Take care. So Take care. Bye.